Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Yavamot, daf Sadi Gimel, page 93. Before we begin today's daf, I just want to comment on daf Sadi Aleph. Uh, we received a little feedback from some of our co-listeners, which we super appreciate, about this phrase that we talked about, Ibai Luhu La'akruye Legita. Um, and um, there's some ambiguity exactly about how to translate that. Is it that she should read the get? And even if it says she should read the get, definitely a lot of the commentators, you know, say, well, that means an expert would read it, you know, as I brought up, because I think everyone basically assumes how could a woman have been an expert at getting, where some English translations read it as she should have the get written. I personally think that's a little bit of a like commentary translation, but I'm totally willing to acknowledge that I think there is ambiguity in that text itself. I think that's the challenge sometimes when those of us who are native English speakers uh, do learn Gemara, you know, is that sometimes those little nuances do become a little bit uh, difficult. I mean, I think either way, it's interesting that still the onus is on the woman to sort of make sure that her get is uh, was done correctly. That's not something that we sort of see in other areas of halakha. Uh, but I just wanted to sort of mention that uh, before we move on to today's staff. Okay, thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start here on Ahmed Aleph. Um, and what I want to talk about comes on the heels of a comment made by Rabbi Kiva further up the daf, which is really talking about the the way a husband is entitled to a certain percentage or whatever of his wife's earnings, meaning always this is the part of the trade-off, the transactional trade-off between husband and wife. Um, and the question then is, you know, how can that, how can he acquire those earnings, let's say prior to their actual existence, right? Before she's actually done anything, then we're, and, and the question is, Really, it's talking about in the context of nullifying a vow. And can you nullify a vow on something that has not, the expression is, it has not yet come into the world. So Rabbi Akiva basically thinks that you cannot acquire, you cannot be Kona, you cannot acquire something that has not yet come to the come into the world. And the Gemara here, a little further down, it's still on Amad Aleph, pretty close to the top, we have a whole slew of Tanaim who are going to, who whose opinions are lined up in accord or in opposition to Rabbi Kiva's position. So straight away, we've got uh, a big disagreement here um, on the shoulders of Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. The Amar Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, Rav Huna Karav, Rav Karebi Anai, Rabbi Anai Karebi Chia, Rabbi Chia Karebi, Rabbi Karebi Meir, Rabbi Meir Karebi Lezer Ben Yaakov, Rabbi Lezer Ben Yaakov Karebi Akiva, the Amar Adam Makne Davar Shalobalolam. So, this is, it, it, the question here is really, don't we seem to have an opinion of Rabbi Akiva against the opinion of Rabbi Akiva? Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak presents all of these opinions, meaning Rav Huna agrees with Rav, and Rav agreed with Rav Yanai, and Rav Yanai agreed with Rabbi Chia, and Rabbi Chia agreed with Rabbi Huda Nasi, and that's Rabbi, and Rabbi Huda Nasi agreed with Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Meir, of course, was a big Talmud student, famous student of Rabbi Akiva's uh, approach, but here in this case, it says Rabbi Kiva agreed with Rabbi Lezer ben Yaakov. Rabbi Lezer ben Yaakov agreed with Rabbi Kiva. And, and then we come to the, the conclusion here where Rabbi Kiva himself said that a person can indeed um, be Kona, acquire 
an entity that has not yet come into the world, which suggests that Rabbi Kiva, you know, thinks that you could have, you could acquire something that does not yet exist, even though further up on the daf that I didn't read inside, he says his his position implies that he does not agree with his own statement. Um, a very quick word about these Tanaim. They bear, each of them bears his own who's who. I just want to note that Rav Yanai is the, let me think about how this works. Rav Yanai was a student of Rabbi Hudanasi and he studied with Rabbi Chia, and then Rabbi Yanai's son married Rabbi Chia's daughter. So the fact that Rabbi Yanai is going to then agree with Rabbi Chia should not surprise us. I mean, they could have disagreed, obviously, but they're, the they're all of a of a school of thought, right? This is they're all learning together in the same general area, um, at least at this point, at least for this discussion. Um, okay, so the Gemara goes on to kind of fit, flesh out each of these opinions, how we see them manifest, and we're not going to go through all of them in the interest of time, but a little bit. So we start here with um, Rav Huna. Rav Huna Mahi, meaning where do we see that Rav Huna thinks this, meaning specifically that he thinks that you could be makna something that shalom that you could acquire something that has not that does not yet exist. Somebody who sells the fruit of his palm tree, meaning let's say a date palm, Rav Huna says that until the fruit is really, um, I don't know what, come, come to be fruit, right? Until it has grown, um, he can retract the sale, right? He can cancel out. It, it, it isn't yet in effect. But once the fruit is, in fact, in the world, he can no longer go back on it. Now, what does that mean? The acquisition, right? The whole point of this um, transaction is in effect regardless of the fruit being in the world. He can go back on it until the time that the fruit comes to the world. But if he doesn't go back on it, then the agreement that was made before the fruit ever blossomed, or I don't know, why am I blanking on this world? What word do I mean for fruit to 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 become fruit? There's, before it there's grows. Definitely... I don't know. Before yeah. it grows. Sprouts. Um, right? The, anyway, the point is that the transaction is in effect. The implication of the fact that he can cancel it before the fruit comes into the world. Yes, it's not exactly the same as if the fruit were already on the trees at the time of the agreement, but still the agreement um, is is upheld. Rav Nachman Amar, Av Zorbo. And Rav Nachman, who is the, the main name, right, in that whole long list of names, he says, you know, even after the fruit is in existence, you still could retract the sale. You could still go back on it um, because he is the one. And this is really where it becomes interesting. According to Rav Nachman, the very fact that the agreement was made before the fruit was in existence means that there wasn't something, um, I would say, complete in the nature of this transfer of ownership, which is what happens when you, you know, acquire something. So, the so Rav Nachman's position here is to say, you know, it's not the same thing as if they made an agreement with the fruit already in existence. The fact that they made the agreement before the fruit came to be is exactly where it's a little iffy for Rav Nachman. Meaning, at the end of the day, Rav Nachman's whole point is that's what he thinks, but Rabbi Akiva thinks the opposite. Ama Rav Nachman, 
Modena, the E, Shemait, Va'achil, Lo Mafkina Mine. Rabbi Nachman says, All right, but I agree that if the buyer, right, the person who comes to take the fruit, he takes it and he eats it, then you can't go back. You can't, you can't retract at that point, meaning even though, um, even though the original deal was under these iffy terms, at that point, you can't go back on it. Fine. Rav, now the Gemara is going to go on. Rav, the Amar Rav Huna, Amar Rav, Homer Lachavero, Sadezo, Shani Lokeach, Lakesha Akachana, Knuyalacha, Meachshav, Kana. So, how is it that Rav himself also thinks that you could acquire something that does not yet exist? Because we have this story that Rav Huna says that Rav said that there's a case of where one person says to another, This field that I'm about to buy it, when I buy it, it's going to be yours. Okay, meaning this field that I am buying, once I have it in my possession, it will be acquired to you or by you from this time now. Meaning that stipulation is about a property that the the person making the stipulation doesn't even yet own, right? It doesn't he does, it doesn't belong to him yet at that time, implying that. You know, he can do the transaction on the thing that isn't yet his, which suggests he could, you could have transactions on things that do not yet exist. Uh, that by itself might be, it's, you know, a jump, but we understand why Rav Huna wants to put Rav in this camp. Rav Yanai, Karebichia, Jerbiyanai, Havale, Arisa, Dahave, Maitala, Ketanta, Depeire, Kol, Malay, Shabta. So what happens? Rav, we've got, how do we know Rav Yanai agrees with Rebichia? As follows. Raviyanai had a sharecropper, somebody who worked his land, and every Arab Shabbat, that person would bring him a basket, that's Kantak Dapiri, a basket of fruit, every Malay chapter, every Arab Shabbat. Hahu Yoma Nagale Velo Atta. So one day he, he did come. Um, Shakal Isermi Pire Debate Alaihu. So Raviyanai did the, took Truma Maestro. Right, he did the tithing from the fruit that was in his house for in advance of receiving the fruit that he expected this guy to bring, because you're always supposed to do your trumah maestro before Shabbat, because you can't take the tithes on Shabbat. So the question then is, can could you tithe fruit that you don't even yet have? in your possession, meaning could he take the, let's say, I don't know, let's say it's all apples and he's got some apples in his house and some apples coming soon. Can he take extra off of what he has in his house to, um, to account for the fruit that's about to come to his house? And so he's not sure about this. Can he do it or not? And so Riviana went to Revchia and, you know, to, to ask, could he do it? Could he separate basically in advance? Amarle, um, so Rukhia says to him, Shapir Avadita, you Avadit, you did well, right? Meaning you're you this is a a good way to think about this. Titania, Laman Tilmad Lirata Shemel Kaka Koyamim, Elu Shabbatov Yamim Tovim. So he says as follows. This is from a verse that says you should eat before Hashem. Um, you should learn to fear Hashem in all of the, all of your days. And what is all of your days? Elu Shabbatov Yamim Tovim. That's Shabbos and holidays, lamai hilchata. So then, what is the halacha with regard to the tithing? So he says as follows: the moment we say that you're supposed to 
um, handle the tithing in advance, right? Then why do you need a verse, right? Why do you need a verse that's going to permit to allow for the prohibition against carrying things on Shabbat, which is all drabanan? Meaning, once you've got a prohibition that's drabanan, then you then you understand that the Torah verse, meaning the verse we just read, which is by the way from Devarim Yedalid, Deuteronomy fourteen, is not really about that. You, you don't need a Torah verse to teach a drabanan. So rather, um, rather we need to understand. It's not that case. So rather, you have to understand that we're talking here about. Uh, we're talking about it in a in a different case, right? Meaning, it's not talking about somebody who says that the tithing. I'm sorry that the tithe that you're trying to tithe something that did not yet come into the world before Shabbat. Rather, and Rav Yanai says to Rabbi Chia, but I I read in a dream, and this is um, momentarily after the story of Rabbi Yanai and Rabbi Chia, we're going to stop, but kana, a bruised reed. My love, hachi ka'amreli, hine batachta al where they said, and this is a verse from Malachim, what are you putting your trust on this bruised reed? Meaning you're relying on something that doesn't really stand up. So Rabbi Chia says to him, no, no, the dream is talking about something else. The dream is talking about the time of Mashiach. Um, a bruised reed will not break and a, a dimly burning wick will not be put out. Meaning, that's a verse now from Ishayao, the book of Isaiah 42. Meaning, Rav Yanai, you did the right thing. And Ramchia and Rav Yanai agree, and this is uh, the end of it, right? The Ramchia and Rav Yanai agree that um, that which is not in the world cannot be acquired. Meaning, it's a roundabout way to say, ah, he didn't get that fruit yet from that guy. Not taking the tithing, not doing the tithing at that time was the right thing to do. So I, I love the way that this sort of gets resolved with a dream in a way, right? Like that he, <laughs> yeah. even though he's given sex, dream sort of bothers him. And then he has to come and reinterpret the dream to say that it's, you know, that it's okay. Um, but this whole section is, is just a great section because I think it shows you individually what case each Tana has, right? What halakha they teach that proves this point. And they also concluded even with sort of like a real life story. Like it's nice to say that you can, you know, do this, that you could sort of uh, own legal effect on something that's not yet in this world, but then they have a story to actually illustrate it to you. So it, it's just, it, it's using a lot of different techniques, techniques here that the Gemara employs, either, you know, finding parallel cases with the same principle or an actual real life story. Um, I'm going to jump down to Amud Bet, um, and we remember the Mishnah that we read quite a while ago that was on Pei Zion, talked about that a woman can basically remarry on the basis of one person's testimony and a single witness testimony that her husband is dead. And so the question is, can a woman undergo Yibum based on that testimony as well? So they asked of Rav Sheshet, right, what's the law? Uh, regarding the testimony of a single witness and a Yavama, right? Can she undergo Yibam uh, based on one witness that her husband has died? 
Tama de Edachad. So now they're going to explain this a little bit more. Is the reason that we sort of believe this one witness and say she can uh, remarry? Mishum de Milsa de Avida Liigule Lo Mishaker. Is it based basically on the Milsa, on the principle that people don't lie about any matter that's likely to be revealed? In other words, you're not going to lie about something that eventually the truth could really come out about. But Hachanami, so here too with Yibam, right? The reason why we'll believe based on a single witness is low mishakir, right? We can, people, this isn't something people would lie about because the truth eventually is actually going to come out. Odilma, Tame de or maybe the reason is, is that the reason why we believe a single witness, Mishum daka saba, right? Because she herself, once this one witness comes, the woman herself would investigate it and, and make sure that really she believes this witness um, uh, because uh, be, before she marries. Now, again, this reminds me a little bit of what we talked about, you know, to Dapimbo about the get, that it's not putting the onus on her in the same way with the get, but the idea is like the woman's invested in making sure that this testimony is correct and she'll do a little bit of her own investigating herself. But a woman who has to do yibum, right? Since there are, there may be times that she actually, she liked her brother-in-law, maybe she's not going to investigate as carefully. And so I think this is interesting because it brings up ultimately sort of one of the reasons why I remember Abba Shaul had this opinion that we saw at the beginning of the Masachat. The rabbis are, always have this concern about yibum, that Yibum allows basically an usher relationship, right? A brother-in-law and a sister-in-law to marry each other. And they're concerned that maybe, you know, the uh, the motivation may not be as pure as just sort of keeping the name alive as the deceased brother. And it says like maybe, you know, she's not going to investigate so quickly with a single witness comes because she'd be very happy to marry uh, this, uh, this brother-in-law. So, you know, so it's giving reasons about, you know, trying to understand what's going on. Either it's that we assume people don't lie or we assume she would investigate, but maybe that wouldn't necessarily be the case with Yibam. So Rav Shesha's answers by citing, uh, by looking at the second case of our Mishnah. Amr Luhu Rav Shesha, so Rav Shesha says, Tintuha, uh, right? You learned this already in our Mishnah. Amrullah made Benaich, right? If they say to her originally, first your child died, and afterward your husband died, Right. So in other words, then her husband died without children beneath by Ma. So based on that, she can enter Yibam. She would have an obligation to enter to Yibam because when her husband died, he did not have children. And then later they come and they reverse it, that actually the husband died and then the child died. So there wouldn't be any obligation of Yibam because when the husband died, he actually did have offspring. Tate say, she has to leave the Yavam. And a child born right? Either first or last, it's considered to be, uh, is considered to be a mamzer. So Rav Sheshis now, you know, wants to say, hey, Chidami, what's actually, what are the circumstances of this case that basically says that what we first thought, the first set of testimony, right, gets over, gets overruled or gets reversed by a second set of testimony. If you want to say that both of these testimonies, that the first order was son, husband, in terms of their death, and then later it gets reversed to husband, son, was based on two sets of witnesses, right? Both of those had two witnesses to back up both claims, claims right? My chazit anino. 
right? Why do you rely on these? In other words, you have no way of knowing that the second set of witnesses is more reliable than the first set of witnesses. You have equal number of witnesses for both claims. Smuch and ahne, you know, so in other words, rely on those, maybe just rely on the first set and that really the yibum was okay. Ba'od mamzer. And also the Mishnah says that child's actually a mamzer. Suffolk mamzer who? He's not a real mamzer. It's a suffolk mamzer because you get, you have two equal sets of witnesses. So why would you say he's a definite mamzer? Right. And if you want to say that the Tana wasn't precise, you know, they, they always love to say this, right? That maybe he meant to say he was a suffolk mamzer. Look at what's taught actually. Um, in the end, the third case that's in that Mishnah, which basically says that if she were married uh, on, you know, based on testimony that her husband died, and then two other te- witnesses come later and say he was alive when she remarried and only died afterwards, right? It says the first child is a mamzer, but the second one is not a mamzer. There, the Tana wrote the language very, very precisely. I'm not going to get into the whole thing about the Rishon Akram, but in other words, the point here is, is that there the language is precise. So it can't be that the first language of just saying Mamzer, when it should have said Safik Mamzer, that the Tan is precise in one case and not precise in another case. So what we have to learn from here is, is that really what this case is in the Mishnah is, is that the first, uh, that the final testimony, the second one that overrides the initial testimony, must be a case where the initial testimony, the one word said, oh, she can go into Yibam, was by a single witness. And then the final testimony that she didn't have to do Yibam, that it was really the son who died, it was, sorry, the husband who died, and then the son must have been given by a number of sheishas. And the only reason that that single witness, right, we're going to reverse it, is because a set of two witnesses came and reversed it and refuted it. But if it wasn't for this latter, you know, for these other two witnesses that come, Nehemon, the single witness would have been believed. And so what this basically proves is a single witness is believed to permit Yiblam. In the Mishnah's case is just about how could that single witness get reversed? It can only get reversed if basically two other witnesses come forward. And so basically, the Gemara concludes here, you know, that a single witness is allowed for Yibam. But the first part of that argument about sort of why do we allow the single witness, right, I think is interesting. You know, I, I part of what I'm appreciating with these Gemaras is, it's trying to understand the motivation for some of this, right? Like yesterday, there was a whole discussion about is it a mistake? Or is it a ruling? Like, how do we understand exactly what's going on with some of these legal decisions. And here with the single witness, right, the the Gemara toys with two different ideas here, which is either, you know, do we assume that this is just not something that people lie about or that we assume she'll do a little bit of investigating. The Gemara doesn't come to a conclusion actually about which one it is. Although I do think based on how Rav Shesha sets this up, it does seem to be uh, to me to be a little bit more the former, that we sort of assume people are just not lying and if just new evidence comes forward, it's just that now there's new evidence. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Full as... Thank you to Rebecca.
Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.